0: Welcome to HXGN Radio. My name is Brian, and today we are featuring a conversation between Andrew Storyer of Hexagon and Michael Fry, founder and CEO of Deepwater Subsea. One of the drilling rigs that Michael supported as a Subsea superintendent was the Deepwater Horizon in the Gulf of Mexico, which was tragically destroyed in a fatal blowout in April of 2010. Listen in as Michael describes how he has taken lessons learned from that tragedy to create a step-by-step digitization process that the oil and gas industry can use to prevent future disasters. He combines his 10 years experience in the U.S. Navy aboard nuclear submarines and more than 20 years experience in subsea operations to create the oil and gas segment's premier subsea operational excellence consultancy.
1: Welcome, everyone. Today, I'm with Michael Fry. Michael has a wealth of experience. Michael, did you want to introduce yourself a little bit, give a context to our listeners? Sure. About your background, your experience. Uh, it's some pretty interesting stuff, I believe.
2: Oh, no, I appreciate it. So my name is Michael Fry. I'm the president and CEO of Deepwater Subsea. Uh, we're an operational excellence consulting company based out of Houston, Texas, specializing in subsea operations, uh, real-time monitoring, competency development, and training, and uh, been in oil and gas for just over 20 years. Uh, prior to that, I spent 10 years in the U.S. Navy working on uh, nuclear submarines, working with torpedoes, cruise missiles, and weapons delivery systems. Wow.
1: Okay. So you've seen it all?
2: Seen, seen a little bit. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, seen a
1: little bit. Yeah. And I think um, you had some experience as well with the, the Deep Water Horizon event um, as well. And that's sort of what's, I, I think, jump-started your most recent business, right? Yeah. Do, do you want to talk a little bit about that as well?
2: Yeah. Um, so I was the subsea superintendent for Transocean for the Deepwater Horizon. It was one of the rigs that I helped uh, support from a subsea operations standpoint and technical field support. I had multiple rigs that we supported, but the Deepwater Horizon was one of them. So on the night of the incident, uh, April 20th, I got a telephone call basically asking for uh, where the control system drawings were. And Obviously, I knew that something was wrong because that would not be a call that I would get at you know basically about 10:30 at night. So, started asking some questions. Basically, I got, hey, don't worry about it at the moment. You know, we just need this information, and, and you know, just go ahead and go back to bed. Ended up sending a, or making a telephone call out to the rig. Obviously, for obvious reasons, no one answered the phone. Um, sent out an email to the rig and to the rig manager, basically saying, hey, I got this really you know cryptic telephone call. What's going on? You know, is there anything I can help you guys with? Got a response back basically saying, hey, you need to get to the, the Park 10 office, which was the North American office, as quickly as possible. Uh, can't discuss anything more about it. So, yeah, from a day-to-day operations standpoint, you know, Horizon was one of my rigs. Uh, made multiple trips to it. Sadly, six of the 11 guys that were lost, I knew fairly well. Uh, a couple of them I worked on other rigs with, but it was just, yeah, it's, it's a tragic experience. Um, not only to... To go through from a support standpoint, but just the helplessness of trying to do everything you can to help secure the the BOP at the time. Yeah. And basically everything you did just did not work for, for obvious reasons.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was an absolute tragedy and obviously, well, it's a disaster as well. And I think, you know, one of the things that came out of this, it was such a huge public profile of this incident. And it's like, how could something like this happen? And that sort of motivated you as well as sort of well, how, what did go wrong here, uh, and what was the problem that no one knew that was happening? And it sort of sounded like in that phone call, you know, have you got this particular piece of information? And they obviously couldn't find it. So yeah, do, like what what are your thoughts sort of around that as well? Like how can how can we go about preventing these disasters? I suppose what is the problem that crops up?
2: You know, one of the classes that we teach is a, a subsea management training course to. Help guys understand how to run their department, how to run a subsea department, and from that, uh, spun a quality assurance training course. And it's one of the courses that I'm I'm actually in Australia at the moment teaching. and And what's interesting about it is one of the questions that came up today during the class is, did the the blowout preventer function as designed? And there will be a lot of people on one side of the spectrum that'll say no, it didn't, because Horizon happened. And then there's others who, when you look at the technical information that was available. The BOP did what it was supposed to do. It sheared the pipe. The annulars were closed. You know, functionally it, it worked. Unfortunately, what you saw on TV was a blowout because the the elastomers around the Rams actually started to wash out, and so it didn't matter what happened in that moment. Once the Rams washed out, it was just a, it was all over with, right? And so, from could this have been prevented? Um, You know, U.S. regulations have changed because of Macondo. The new well control rule back in 2016 was basically based off from how do we prevent another Macondo from happening? Unfortunately, the question I always ask is if from an operational standpoint, the things that went wrong, not accounting the BOP, if we did the exact same thing over again, could Macondo happen a second time? And unfortunately, the answer is yes, because it had nothing to do with the blowout preventer. And, and I say that with some bias being a subsea person, but the reality is operationally there were so many things that went wrong that if we did it all over again, the exact same steps with the new regulations in place, you're probably still having a similar event.
1: Right. Okay. So it comes down to the operations factor.
2: It, it really does at the end of the day.
1: Well, let's dig into that. So what are the problems with operations and the management of operations that's allowing these sort of risks to continue to exist within businesses?
2: I think a big one, especially, you know, not picking on a condo, but a big one is the human factors, right? It's all about, you know, the the peer pressures and the understanding of what's really required for, for operations to where there were a lot of things that were done um, systematically that you would not do during normal operations. And for whatever reasons, those decisions were made. Um, I don't know why they were made, but they were made from the investigations and the fallout from it. The sad thing is it really comes down to, Cutting cost, speed, things that it's like, look, the money's already been spent. The money's been budgeted. Hey, we're over budget. So what? Let's just get it over with and let's finish safely and move on. But even in 2019, you still hear the question of, well, the cost and, and, you know, what's the ROI or why are we making this decision if we could do it this way? And it's like, guys, my condo was really only nine years ago. You know, did we, do we, are we going back in the other direction again of, I understand what's right, but cost is now coming back into the forefront, right? And so how do you eliminate a Macondo from happening operationally? You really have to have organizations to where the human factor of peer pressure and outside influences get removed. And it's, this is what needs to be done. This is the way that we do business. This is our policies and procedures. And we're going to follow them to the letter of the law. And we're not going to deviate because of... Management pressure to try to speed things up. We're going to do the things the way that they need to be done and just execute it safely and, and move on to the next job.
1: So, just coming back a little bit there with Macondo, so it was a little bit like uh, not only was it the human factor that was involved, but it, there could have been a cost cutting exercise in that didn't allow for sort of that operations management to have visibility over, sorry, the, the technical piece that failed in the end.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think if you look at it from there were simple operations that are done on every rig at the end of every well. And if you sit back and you go, why did we do it this way? It makes absolutely zero sense. It had to do with trying to speed up the operation. Right. Versus do step one, do step two, the way we've done it a thousand times throughout the industry. This was one of those perfect storms to where a lot of bad things that shouldn't have happened all got lined up at the same time.
1: Yeah, right. Okay. And that sort of seems to be a common thread in that, you know, the speed to delivery and cut costs out as well. That seems to be creeping back into the industry. Is that something that you're saying right now, or is it just sort of?
2: I think cost is always a challenge. Mm. Um, you know, I make this, I say this quite a bit, and, and people can take it or leave it. But in deep water operations and offshore oil and gas, you have to pay to play. You know, there's high risk, there's high rewards, but the day to day cost is very high, especially with subsea blowout preventers. Mm. You just, you know, going into it that you're sitting down at the high rollers table and you're going to have to pay to play. So un- unfortunately cost is always there but I think and I think when you start tying bonuses to performance and now somebody's saying well you know if I cut this over here you know mama can get a new car and it's like look operationally this cost is always going to be there if you know that it's a requirement especially a regulatory requirement how do you cut it out of the day-to-day operations and so you you see this internal battle between management trying to do the right thing you know, we will never cut corners. We will never do this. We'll never do this. And then operationally, it's perception versus reality, which is the perception is do it safe, do it efficient, do it, you know, don't worry about what happens, but we're going to take our time. Reality is get it done, get it done quick, you know, and it's not everywhere, but you still see instant investigations of what happened. Well, you know, they didn't want to spend money to get this and they didn't want to do that. And it's like, Guys, like, did we not learn our lessons the first time around? You know, we just had the anniversary of Piper Alpha, and we have the Deepwater Horizon, and we have these major catastrophic incidents that have taken place, and we we memorialize these events, you know, and we we bring them up as anniversary reminders. Yeah, when it comes to operations, we fall back to pre you know twenty ten and go, well, you know, that was a one off incident, but it still happened. Hmm.
1: So it sort of sounds like uh I mean there's a couple of things that I'm pulling away from this is that probably sounds like there needs to be a better bridge between the executive and actually the team executing uh so that the the speed to delivery doesn't increase so that the ex- the executive is educated to understand no 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 we can't speed up for these reasons if you're afraid of unplanned costs it's coming through the form of a disaster and then on the other side it sounds like there's also uh, the operations management the human factor there probably needs to be uh, checks and balances in place there. I mean, I don't want to take words out of your mouth, but yeah, so some of these problems that we've been discussing, what well, what are some of the solutions?
2: So I mentioned my background being U.S. military, right? One of the the collateral duties I had was a quality assurance inspector, so Subsafe QA, which is probably one of the most stringent quality assurance programs in the world. Mm-hmm. There was zero tolerance for you know noncompliance. It was, uh, I say all the time, it's 100%, 100% of the time. The difference is, the reason we looked at it differently is you actually went underway with the submarine. So when operations are taking place in in any industry, somebody can go, well, it's my shift's over whether I'm going home. On a submarine, if you rebuilt the valves and you were part of the quality assurance program, 99% wasn't good enough because you were going underwater with those hull valves that you just witnessed. And if it was like, well, maybe the, the other crew will catch it and my chopper's coming here shortly you're going underwater with the submarine. And so some of the the takeaways for me from an operations standpoint is transparency. And so you know, we talk about digitalization and transformation, a lot of these things that are happening in the industries today, in all industries. One of the reasons we're going hard digital is because it allows me to demonstrate to my customer every step of the way where we're at in our operation. And so what that allows me to do is remove the the unknowns of, well, how much do we have left and why is it like this and what challenges are we facing? I basically utilize tools that I can present back to my customer and say, here's exactly where we're at. And he knows every step of the way where we're at in the process. And so it gets away from that. What's left? Why are we doing this? What What do we got to do? He knows every day where we're at. And so I think that's one thing that happens. You get You get management that gets disconnected from operations. And then when they reconnect, it's like, now we got to speed things up. Where if they were just connected the entire time, you would remove a lot of these challenges that, that operations face.
1: Yeah. Okay. So how do you guys then um, incentivize or KPI or sort of uh, you, you know manage that process? Is that you know traditionally, I mean, uh, you know, key performance indicators are, are they tied to sort of compliance and those kind of things? How do you get people to stick to that?
2: So for us, it's a hundred percent compliance, and the reason for that is um, you know we were kind of talking about it earlier offline. So U.S. regulations, API regulations, American Petroleum Institute, um, these standards are written, written into contracts and written into regional regulations. And so what I always tell people is, hey, look, it's black and white. Like, I don't have an opinion about it. I'm not biased one way or another. I might not agree with it. But the regulation says you're going to perform X, Y, and Z. We're going to perform X, Y, and Z. And if it says you're going to document the following, well, we're going to document the following. That way, if heaven forbid something happened and we are called to the table to present what we did as far as this check, I have the objective quality evidence to be able to demonstrate back to the customer these are the things that we did. So the way that we get around it is we ensure that the, the, the criteria for which we're auditing against is documented and it's visible to our inspectors, our surveyors. Then we assign the quality evidence that they're supposed to capture. So for an example, Verify the calibration of this gauge is within, you know, the standard requirement of three years. It has to be traceable back to an industry standard. So what they do is they'll take a picture of the gauge. They'll get the, the calibration sticker and then they'll actually get a copy of the certificate, which we use as the objective quality evidence. So if somebody said prove to me your guy actually did that, here's the picture. Here's the certificate. And so what that does is it removes me from saying, Hey, did you really do it? And the guy's like, yeah, trust me. I did it. No, no, I trust you. And one of the things in the Subsafe QA program was trust, but verify. I trust you. We joked about, Hey, look, I love you like a brother, but I don't trust you like my brother. But even as an employee, I have guys who have been doing this for 25 years and they say, look, no one's ever questioned me. I'm not questioning you. What I'm doing is protecting you. And by if you've already captured this information, then just put it in there and attach it to the, to the check of the, the criteria. And then there's nothing to worry about.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it sounds like you've got to manage a lot of information there.
2: A ton of information.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I was going to ask something pretty facetious, which is like, you know, can you do that manually? I mean, it, I mean, it probably is possible, right? But is um,
2: it- No, because the, the challenge is, is everybody, when you give people an option of where to file something, one guy will file it over here. One guy will file it over there. Well, the internet's not quick enough. So I got to wait till I get home and manually. Sure. You could do it manually. You know, Hey, Scan this. Give me a printout when you get back to the office. Unfortunately, my thumb drive crashed, or my computer crashed, or oh well, I didn't get that. And it's there's
1: human factor.
2: How do you remove the human factor? Right? You give them tools that they can use in that moment to actually attach to it. And so I try to remove from them. Hey, look, if you get if we get called to a, a board of inquiry or to, in front of the customer or the U.S. regulator, what evidence do we have to go back and say yes, this work was done? All you can do is go digital because if you're not, you're going to be digging through drives and SharePoints and, you know, printing out different manuals and.
1: Oh, thanks. And I mean, you know, obviously the costs that are associated with the risk with that are self evident. Yeah. But I think sort of coming back, well, if that's the case, if you've got to digitize, what kind of investment are people looking at in terms of digital transformation? You know, is it a simply a process of just buying an information management tool or? What's the process or how did you guys walk through that in to start setting up the system that you guys have at Deepwater so Subsea? Yeah,
2: that's a good question. So initially, um, from compliance inspections, pretty much everybody for the most part used to use Excel spreadsheets. And so, yeah, the spreadsheets had all the tabs, here's all the checks, here's why you had to do it. It was kind of cookie cutter. Everybody uses the same regulation. So there's not like some secret sauce that company A has against company B. And so what we started off with was basically, you know, G Suite, so Google. And so because I wanted something that was web-based that the guys didn't have to remote log in and go through all that, you know, the IT hassle. So I said, okay, we'll use G Suites. We'll make it simple. You just take the documents, we'll upload them to the drive for that job. Should be pretty simple, right? If you give people choices, they'll put it in different folders and they'll put it Hey, I created my own folder, and it's over here. And so, I started looking at the challenges that I was hearing from my customers, and we actually picked up customers because our competitors were allowing the the U.S. regulator to um, find instance of noncompliance. And so, one of the things I said is, "Well, how do we prevent that from happening?" And so, basically, we had to take ownership of the equipment almost like it was ours. And so if there was a, a inspection that had to be done every year, how do I ensure that the drilling contractors and making sure that that PM is done, that maintenance is done. So I created a digital system that kind of replicated the requirements of if the asset was my own, which basically informed me that this PM was coming due so I could make sure that the drilling contractor was doing his PM the way he was supposed to do it. Right. So here are digital twins and a lot of these other things. And, for me it was literally just a digital recording platform. And so I said if this is the asset, what's its make model serial number? What's its date of installation? What's its kind of the metadata that goes behind with it from an asset information? And then from an operational standpoint, the more that I gather from that that piece of equipment, the certificates of certification, the last inspections, you know, how many cycles has it had when we start getting into real time monitoring. Yeah. When I started looking at how do I bring all that together, I was like, "Hey, look, I'm a really smart guy. I'm gonna build my own system. What an absolute disaster that was because yeah, now I'm having to go to consulting companies and go, "I want you to build for me this system, and they were like, "That's fantastic. You know, um, let's just start with six figures for six figures for what like well, I can do this on my own then so we started looking at, you know, access databases and, you know, file maker. And it's like, like, all right, I got to come up with a way to try to make this work. And every time I turned around, I kept going, I don't have the time or the resources to, to make this happen, to actually pull this off. Yeah. So I'd go back to another consulting company and go, I want to build a system that does all of this stuff. And they're like, yeah, absolutely. It's fantastic. Six months, six figures. And, we, and I'm like, look, I don't have six months to wait. And so. Where this all kind of gets wrapped up, you know, long story short, we started doing real time monitoring and, you know, we're, we're looking at, uh, I'll step back for a moment. Somebody came to me and said, Hey, have you ever thought about doing real time monitoring with the, on the blowout preventers? And I was like, absolutely not. Like, I don't want anything to do with any of that stuff because it's a huge investment. And, you know, I know us regulations are coming that are going to make it mandatory, but I'm basically, it's like the field of dreams, right? Like if I build it, hopefully somebody will come along and want it. But if they don't, I've built this system that's, there's zero value to, to our company. So what we did is we, we invested in OSIsoft's Pi system. And it was funny because I said, I have to think about the big picture. And one of the things I always talked about or talk about is there's a great book called The 48 Laws of Power. And one of the 48 Laws of Power is basically planning to the end and then think of every possible scenario in between there. So you're, you're already prepped for anything that could happen because you've thought about it ahead of time. And so what I said is, okay, I'm going to invest in this. And what happens if nobody buys it? How do I utilize this real-time monitoring system? And what I said is, I'll start utilizing it for our digital verification program as part of the system. I'll build out the asset hierarchy, just like if I was the rig equipment owner, put all this metadata in, and then I'll let the system inform me via text messages and emails and just digital visualization of, of displays. The information that my guys would be doing as they're doing their inspections, and when I really started getting into it, I went to a conference, an industry conference with with OSIsoft, and I ran into the J Five team, and they introduced me to the J Five operational management system and industrial forms and all the rest of it, and then it clicked. It was an instant. It was literally the joke is it was one of the fastest like point of sales to to go from initial contact to like let's. Let's cut it and let's get it going installation-wise. I think it was a week yeah. from the time I met them to the time we had the system. It was like, this is what I'm looking for. It does everything that I want. It's customizable. It's web-based. I don't need anybody else to help me build it. My team can build it. And we just dove in and it's been been the best investment we've ever made for it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. To answer your question, why companies go away from it, I think, the challenges of digitalization, hmm. if you don't see the ROI up front, Unfortunately, a lot of times you're investing in something that won't have a return to the, to the bottom line. Yeah. It's really about operational efficiency and what you can give back to not only your employees, but your customers. And it's not something to say, if I invest in this technology, I'll be able to save X, you know, or I'll make, you know, X on the back end. You're investing in yourself as an organization to improve the efficiency and the delivery of your products.
1: And I think just listening to you talk there as well. Uh, Mike you had a really good understanding of what your problem was and what the potential solution was you just didn't have a solution and then you obviously bumped into J5 International and you're like well here it is so i think that's probably where you know other providers need to educate themselves is understanding what their problems are so you know digitizing uh these sort of and obviously i'm not technical on this front but they could probably understand oh well this needs to be digitized this is where we need to capture information and this is how it sort of should be replicated Um, so maybe, you know, that sounds like the core issue here is a lot of of people, when they say, Oh, we, we want to return on investment or we want to understand the value of the platform, they're probably not ready in and of themselves to purchase a solution because they actually don't know what their problem is or the scope of their problem is.
2: And I I think one of the big things too, from a, a management standpoint, is there's a lot of organizations today that don't want to do software as a service because they want their own solution. We want to own this process. And unfortunately, for me, I think it was the best decision that we made was, I'm tired of trying to reinvent the wheel. I'm going to go hire other smart companies who have already built the wheels and I'm just going to bolt them onto my car and take off and run. And so every software that we use now is a software as a service, but it's built into, we call it an ecosystem to where all of our systems are integrated with one another. So OSIsoft's kind of the hub because that's where the real-time monitoring data comes in. Mm -hmm. J5's operational management system can pull information from the pi system it can also write back from the industrial forms back into the pi system we've now invested into hexagons SDX operational you know um, software that allows us to use smart p and IDs which allows us to basically integrate with j5's industrial forms and also pull pi system data and so every software that we use one of the, the primary fundamental requirements is it must be able to be integrated with the rest of the systems. And if it can't, it just doesn't, it doesn't meet the cut. Yeah. And so one, it allows me to move a lot faster because all I have to do is basically sign the check and say, here's where we need to download it and here's how you connect it. And now you're off and running Mm. versus months and months and months of having to sit down and go, this is what I want. And having to explain to somebody else to build it versus just going and finding what's already been built and saying, I'll take it. Let's go.
1: Yeah. So this, I mean, this sounds like your your digital strategy really is, uh, you know, you've actually got a really clear picture. Do you guys have it documented as well within the business of sort of how you go about acquiring vendors or, you know, what's your sort of process there? If you, do you, yeah, when you take a request for proposal from um, vendors, are you sort of looking, this is where you need to plug in uh, and this is what we expect out of you as a vendor?
2: So we're a very small organization and and this probably goes against conventional wisdom, Mike finds a software and he goes, I want it. And I already know ahead of time what it is that that I want it to do and what it needs to do. What's interesting is the more I talk to the Hexagon team, talking about SDX and some of these other tools, Smart Plant, um, when I sit down and start going, well, this is what I'm looking for. And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I can do that. Then I get more and more excited because like, oh, I didn't realize it could do that. And so I know what I'm looking for. And it's like, I always say, this is the piece of the puzzle that we've been looking for. And my team jokes, cause they're like, this puzzle doesn't have an end to it. It oh, yeah. just keeps getting bigger and bigger. <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. All puzzles have so many pieces. Mm. But for me though, it started off with, I needed something to take my checklist digital because I wanted something. And I actually use it in our marketing materials. I tell our customer, look, everything we do is web-based. It's transparent. You have a login. So if you ever want to go and check where are we at in the status of the inspection, log in and take a look at it. If you want to see where we're at from a real-time monitoring standpoint, log in and see your rigs. We have nothing to hide because if we're doing our job, everything should be, you know, we should be transparent in everything we do. I think what happens is when you get organizations start covering up and it's like, I don't want you to have the documentation. I don't want you to see what's going on behind the curtain. Then it's like you start wondering, are you really doing what you're supposed to do? But when we go about selecting softwares um, and vendors, it really comes down to I see something online or I get introduced to something or one of my team says, hey, look, have you ever seen this? And it's like, oh, well, let's take a look at it. And if I like it and it fits the purpose of what we're looking for, then the rest of us just make the investment and pull the trigger.
1: Yeah, no, fair enough. I may be changing tact a little bit here. But uh, one thing I was thinking about, and we, we discussed offline as well, is just sort of adopting Uh, digital solutions or digitizing, you know, processes, there's a lot of resistance to change around that. You know, a lot of people seem to, well, within this industry, dig their heels in and say, well, the way we've done it works and it's worked for the last 25 years. How do you approach problems like that? And sort of how do you get people to open their eyes to the possibilities of sort of digitizing operations?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, When we first started rolling out the digital checklist, you know, as a business owner, I was excited. My customers were excited and my team, not so much excited, you know, and I know it's bad English, but my team was like, this sucks. Like, why, why do we want to do this? We've been doing this for so long. It works. Everybody else is doing it this way. Why do we got to be the company that trying to changes things and just, you're making it more difficult for us to do our job. The funny thing is that resistance to change, right, is if you, if you try to force change and not show people the value of why you're changing, then it gives them a reason to resist it you're going to do it because I own the company and you're going to do it because I tell you Mm. versus I go, have you read the new regulations lately? And they say, well, what do you mean? I said, well, the U S regulation requires us to verify this and this and this and document the process and show the the documentation we use for verification. And and all of this stuff is what your digital checklist does. And so when companies resist change, I think, unfortunately Mm. they don't understand the reason why they're changing a lot of companies change so often that the guys in the field are like, "Yep, here comes another one. Just get ready to ride this wave out, and this one shall too pass." Or they try to implement a solution that, for the guys in the field, doesn't really—it's not fit for purpose. But from an operations management standpoint, the salespeople that came in said, "Oh, this is the this is the piece that you've been looking for." Management invests in it, and the guys in the field go, "We actually went backwards." And so, for me, when I'm working with the team, it's always. Guys, this is a process. You know, we didn't show up on Monday and I flip a switch and say, okay, we're going 100% digital. We've said, okay, these rigs are going to start going digital because one, they have the bandwidth, they have, you know, the customer that supports it. We have other rigs that are like, hey, look, I can't even get online and check my email. And so we, we go, okay, we'll stick to the paper for the moment. And then so we're, we're working through this process. But I think from an organizational standpoint, especially in industry, you know, especially today in oil and gas, everybody's trying to be that next company to find the, the next, you know, golden ticket. It's like, this is going to project us out in front of everybody else. And we're going to invest in this new maintenance system or this new information management system. Not really thinking about the end user. For me, I was one of the end users. So when I started looking at how do we meet the requirements, it wasn't a hard sell from a guys like this will actually make your job a lot easier. Because some of our inspections can take months. I might be on the rig, you might be on the rig, we're we're changing back and forth. And so what happens is as the regulations change, who's updating that Excel spreadsheet? How do you know that you actually have the right document to be referencing against? Digitally, I make one change, it, it goes out through the whole organization. And so for me, it was very simple because as I saw some of these checklists coming in, I was like, where did you get that checklist from? And they're like, well, I had it on my computer. We haven't used that thing in in a year. And it's like, all right, guys, we got to make this change and we're going hard digital and it's going to be controlled by one central point. And every time you log in, you're going to get the latest and greatest revision and you just move forward with it.
1: Yeah. I mean, is, is there a sort of set formula for how you digitize or is it just sort of like you were saying that free form sort of whatever the biggest problem is right now, let's try to digitally solve it as it I, comes at us. Yeah.
2: I think you take it into pieces. For me, for example, we were kind of talking about on the drive over, um, one of the last pieces of the puzzle was the information management part of it. I had real-time monitoring. We're streaming multiple rigs. I have a digital checklist, uh, operations logbook, the, whole, the J5 operational management system, fantastic tools, but yet I would have to go find a manual or find a drawing or find a document. It was like, good gosh, I spend so much time looking for this one piece of information. There's got to be a tool out there that we can utilize. I get introduced to, you know, SCX and smart plan, all the rest of it. And it's like, boom, now I have, you know, the, the last piece that we're looking for because I bring in the the other half of the system that ties it all together. Mm. And so for me, it's, it's a, it's kind of a step process. Unfortunately, I didn't know which step was the first step because we don't really have an IT department. We don't yeah. have a systems engineers. We have, we do now because of real time monitoring, but before it was. Mike, Mike and Mike, you know, and it was, it was, you know, it, it's funny, but it's sad at the same time because we are a small group. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, our Houston office really has, we have five people now, like office based staffed and then our real time monitoring team that that come and go based on a rotation, but we're not some huge organization to where it's like, Oh, we've got the IT group over here. We've got this group over here. We outsourced a lot of it, hmm. but when it came to finding the right tools to use, it literally sat down and it was like, what are my biggest pain points? And I need to find a solution to fix them as quickly as possible. But I started with what is the biggest risk to the organization, but what is the biggest reward back to the customer? Yeah. So that's how we kind of went through it.
1: I think that's the interesting part around that. You, you centralized everything on what the customer actually needs. What's the output here that they need most? And a lot of the time what gets revealed is, you know, not an overhaul of process per per se, but how can we deliver value? And I think that that's sort of the missing piece. And we've we've touched on it lightly in our conversation, but it's like, how much you know do I need to invest? What's the ROI? These are all the, the questions. Do you, would you say they're the wrong questions to be asking? Rather, should be should
2: someone look at it through a different lens? I think the question of ROI. You might not get an ROI um, if if you looked at the investments that we as Deepwater Subsea is made in technology. We're probably a negative ROI because we're not gaining anything back from like, Hey, we've invested, you know, just hypothetically, we invested a hundred grand in all this technology and it's going to make us 500 grand. Yeah. There's no, there's no outside because the question is, well, what if you didn't have the technology? Cause you still deliver your, your, you know, the work that you do. Yeah. Absolutely. Technology's just made us more efficient at it. It didn't eliminate people. It didn't speed up anything because I'm there as a, as an inspector. So I'm basically watching somebody else do their job. Mm. And I think, unfortunately, if you, for us, for an example, from an inspection criteria and and the the things that we do, one of the things in the U S is the regulator can come in and say, show me the documentation that you use for this. And I I kind of briefed briefly touched on it earlier. We actually had an example of that where the U S regulator Caught wind of a problem across, you know, across industry and went back to our customer and said, this rig has this type of equipment on it. What what did you guys do to make sure this thing was closed out? And so our customer came back to us. I pulled up our industrial form where the check was in place, went to the operations logbook. Here's all the objective quality evidence that we captured. It was five minutes worth of work to turn around and go, here you go, Mr. Regulator. Here's all the proof that this work was done. And they actually sat back and were kind of like, can you, can you show us more about that? Yeah, and so unheard of. And, and so now for us, when in the Gulf of Mexico, the new rule talks about the new U S regulation for blowout preventer testing, the requirements 14 days. But if you document from a condition monitoring standpoint and you know, the work that's been done and failures, you can request 21 days. The thing that's interesting is the. The industrial forms operations logbook, you know, smart plan. It does everything that the US regulator is asking for. And so the ROI to our customer is, Hey, if you utilize us, I can check all of the boxes that the US regulator is looking for through the processes that we do every day, utilizing the technology that we have. There's, there's not a tangible value that's put to it. Yeah. A customer can come on board and say, we're going to come on board because you can do the following, but I can't. Say they came on board because of this, because they're really looking for the other half of the service. But that technology helped elevate us above our competition. Right. Okay. So it's kind of a competitive edge. Yeah. You know, yeah. so, so for me, I'll use it from a marketing standpoint. Like, can your other service providers do the following? Well, no. Well, we can. Yeah. And so if you come to us, we already checked the box. Um, they actually build it into the request back to the regulator. Like we utilize deep water subsidies, X, Y, and Z processes, the Janus 24 system. But yeah, the, the hardest thing is upper management always wants to know well, what's the return on the investment. You might not see one for a long time. Um, I make the joke with one of my customers. I said, look, I can save you $2 million a year, but it's going to cost you a million dollars. And they go, well, that's not, I'm like, but that's pretty good ROI if you think about it. And so, well, how about this? I'll save you $3 million a year, but it's going to cost you a guaranteed $1 million. Would you take that investment? The guy's like, absolutely. I said, you'd be pissed for 12 months. Every month I dump an invoice to you, you're going to be like, oh, I don't see the value in this because you're not going to see the value until after 12 months. The problem is, is a lot of people look at technology that way. We're making this huge investment. How fast am I going to see that ROI? Well, you might not see that ROI until a year, two years down the road. But management sometimes doesn't want to hear that. They want that quick, that quick fix, that mm. quick turn. And unfortunately, with technology, a lot of times you don't see it.
1: Oh, and would that be a case then coming back to what we're talking about with those performance indicators, educating management then about, you know, well, look at our compliance record. You know, we're, at, we're running at 100% there and that's the value of digital. Is that sort of where that would play in to sort of help stop, I guess, management getting so jumpy when they don't see the value?
2: I actually flip it and say, how much time are you guys wasting doing things that could be done digitally? And what I mean by that is you still want them on deck. We talked about this today in class. And I said, well, you know, with the the digital technology, why do you do daily rounds? And they said, well, we do daily rounds to get the guys out of the office and go inspect the equipment. I still want them to do that. I just don't want them to waste time writing down information that I could give you digitally. And so for me, it's the efficiency of how well Johnny does his job. Versus trying to change the way Johnny does his job, if that makes sense.
1: No, absolutely. Productivity. Like, yeah. If you can't see the growth value of productivity, then you probably shouldn't be an executive, I guess. But yeah, I think the other question that was uh, sparkling in my mind as you were talking, Mike, was just around the idea of it, the the ability that you, your company had to talk to a regulator and say, here's all the information you need, you know, almost in five minutes. Does that mean that there should be some petitioning going on, perhaps from a government level about digitizing kind of operations? Because we know what the damages can be and maybe the the regulatory compliance aspect should be like, well, you need a platform or you need to start moving towards a platform that allows us to access and give us the visibility that we need to see that you're doing the job right.
2: So, that's that's a good question. So, in the regulations today, it says that documents can be requested, you know, basically as the regulator requested, but it says they have to be readily available. Now, the challenging question is, what does readily available mean? Super subjective. And I always make the joke that when they come out to the rig and they say, hey, we want to see this, readily available means before I get back on that chopper, you better be able to show me that document. But that could be over a couple hours. And I try to always put myself in the regulator's you know, shoes and go, I've asked for this document, which you say you have, but yet you can't produce it to me in two hours. Why is that? And so, unfortunately, with information management systems today, a lot of them are not built for that quick, you know, go find the information. But it is written in the regulations that it needs to be readily available. There needs to be a copy on the rig. There needs to be a copy ashore. And so you're seeing this bigger push even in the way that the, the regulations are written, the standards are written. So it says electronic or hard copy, So you're getting this push more and more to the language of digitalization, but it's hard for a regulator to come out and say, you must go digital because then they're going to say, well, who's going to pay for that? Yeah. And so what they say is you either have to have electronic or hard copy readily available upon request.
1: Okay. Yeah. There's a bit of work, I guess, in moving the industry forward. The other question I was thinking was, um, uh, was just around, I mean, it's clear that you've got a wealth of expertise. I mean, just listening to you talk now, you've had the experience not only from the executive level, but the end user. And one of the things that we've noticed in a survey of APAC as well is that there is a lack of technical expertise, which causes uh, companies, I guess, to be gun-shy about digital transformation. How do you go about acquiring more technical expertise that could could give your company confidence to make the decisions like yourself? Like, you can just make these decisions because you know what the problem is, you know what the solution is. Where do you find that technical expertise? How do you get educated? From from a deep water subsea or how yeah.
2: do we educate our customers? Well,
1: from, from your own experience or how you educate your customers, just how do how do we up the level of technical expertise that allows people to digitally transform?
2: I think the biggest challenge with other organizations is w- when you talk about the oil and gas industry, for an example, things have been done the same way for generations, right? And and I always say the problem that the industry has is, and, and some people don't like it when I say this this way, is If I go back in time to when the industry started, it was mom and pop who owned a rake, who it was on their land and it was their equipment. If you didn't like our rules, then you go away and we'll find somebody else. And then we started moving towards the offshore industry. And so then you had smaller companies, kind of not mom and pops, but you started getting into corporations. And so you, you have people who have done things the same way for generations or years, decades, you know, as an industry. And now you have this big shift towards digital, right? And so I'll go into companies and I'll show the real-time monitoring. And the first thing that comes up is they'll say, oh, it's Big Brother looking over my shoulder. And I said, well, what if it was Big Brother protecting you instead of looking over your shoulder? Like, hey, look, I'm your Big Brother. I have your back. I'm not Big Brother, eye in the sky, making sure, looking for you, making a mistake. And so what I tell people all the time is the value of the digitalization is it gives you the freedom to go do your job. Unfortunately, guys who are not in the digital era are still the guys that go, Well, what's the value of this? Like you're, you're asking us to invest in all of this technology. How does it change how fast we can drill a hole in you know, in the ocean? Well, it doesn't. What changes is the guys who are actually doing the job. How do you document that? So if and when a Macondo happens, you have all the objective quality evidence ready to go. For us, it's pretty easy because internally, Deepwater Subsea, because I'm kind of a tech geek. Um, I like my tech toys for the most part. Um, sometimes I'll buy something and it's like, oh, cool, we get to play with this. And they're like, well, when would we ever use it? Probably never, but I think it's, you know, let's figure out a way how to use it, right? I bought a 360-degree camera many years ago. I went offshore. I stuck it inside a blowout preventer. I stuck it right into the middle of it. I sat there for a couple minutes pulled it out, turned it over, stuck it back in. And I was like, okay, cool. I got a 360 view of the inside of a blowout preventer. Fast forward a couple of years, Oculus Go comes out. Now I can put on a set of, you know, virtual reality, log into my YouTube channel, which is where my 360 degree video was. And I can stand there looking like I'm inside of the blowout preventer, looking around doing the inspection. So I play with technology to try to push us to move forward. But I understand the value that technology can bring. But at the same time, I understand it still has its limitations. But when it comes to bigger organizations, you really just have to be kind of that change insurgent who really wants to drive change for the better. Um, And if you don't have the people, the the stakeholders who believe in it, you can talk change all day long and digital transformation. And you might as well be talking to this brick wall because it's never going to happen. One of our customers who we just recently signed an agreement to monitor all of their drill ships, they'll be the first in the oil and gas industry to basically outsource the entire monitoring of their fleet um, coming to us. Their CEO is very much digital. He is all about digital. And the faster he can get his company up to digital or the digital transformation, um, to him, it's a competitive advantage to be able to say... Look at what I can show you on the iPad. Look at the technology that we're using. If you hire us as a company, this is what you're going to get from an operator standpoint. He's all in on it. Oh, yeah. Others look at it and they go, yeah, that's cool, but it's a fad and it's going to go away. And it's just, it's hard for them to, to grasp it.
1: Well, that's just the way it is then, you know, unfortunately. And it sounds like this is a cultural thing, really. Yeah. And, and so you sort of need that culture in the business. And it does start with sort of super leaders, I guess people who are really in tune. Um, Mike, I would be completely remiss if I didn't ask where you sort of thought this industry was going as well. We've talked a lot about sort of, I guess, unsticking the roadblocks of digitization, but let's talk about the perfect world. Let's talk about, you know, once we can sort of remove some of these roadblocks and start digitizing, what are some of the potential, you know, outcomes of it? I mean, you were saying before, just with the 360 and the Oculus Rift, the kind of things you could achieve there. Like well, What are we looking at next? So, I'll try not to get too excited about this one. This is my favorite part. Let's get excited.
2: (laughs) So in my super, super geeked, perfect world, like if if they just said, Mike, here's technology, make it happen, right? From an operations standpoint, I'm the guy on the rig. And so if I look at all of the information that we have today, right, and and I think about what that guy has to do for his job, the more I can automate that process, the easier his job's going to be, but the more efficient it's going to make him work. And, And where I'm going with this is, We're monitoring the equipment today. So the BOP control systems are sending in all this data. We're seeing things now that we've never seen before. Um, I can see in real time as a failure starts to happen. I can overlay the trends. I can take the digital state and and really paint a picture that no one's ever seen before. The reason they've never seen it is because it's on an operator interface, you know, an HMI human machine interface where they're just looking at a gauge and some readings. Well, when I get the actual values in and I can not manipulate, but I can visually manipulate that data in a way that shows a different story, I can now give this guy information that he's never had when it comes to having to make decisions. Moving forward, the piece of equipment fails. I've loaded up uh, the system, whatever system it is, with the make, model, serial number, historical data, all the KPIs, operational you know, parameters, everything, all the variables that have happened. Instead of him having to go to a book and look all this information up, when did we install it? What's its part number? What's its make, model, all this stuff? It's already loaded into a system. He just goes in and says, this piece failed. It pulls all the information in. The form's filled out automatically with the real-time historical data. All he does is reads it, checks it, checks the box, hits submit. It goes off to the next level, takes all the information from the findings of the failures, Turns that into KPIs, pushes it back out and says, Hey guys, in a fleet, we've had 15 of these failures, which now turns around to management and says, Hey, look, these failures all happened within seven days of the blow up preventer being ran. Are we actually the ones causing it by doing the maintenance that we're doing? Then you go back and you look at the maintenance optimization of when did we last do this PM? Why are we doing this PM and start? You can, you can do so much with, with data and just technology. But where it really, for me, gets super cool is. Some of the things that, that, that smart plant and the live PNIDs and some of these other things, which is I take a, a P&ID drawing. I take a schematic, basically, and I am in technical field support or I'm in operations and I have to go back to my customer and say, Hey, we have a problem. The customer is not a technical guy. He's, he's a drilling engineer, for example. He's a, a maintenance supervisor. He's whatever industry you're in. He's not the guy doing the work. He's the guy that's being briefed. I bring the smart PNID, I pull it up and say, here's the problem. I click on a button, it pulls up all the historical information of that component in the PNID. And better yet, if I want to show him the live trend of what's going on with that piece of equipment in real time, I just click a button and the trend shows up on the screen. It's all there today with technology that's offered from Hexagon. The beauty is, is when you bring it and you wrap it all together, it's all sitting right in front of you. The Mm -hmm. problem is, is, Uh, We talked about it today in class. And I said, hey, what do you think about this world, right? This perfect world. And the first thing that came out of one of the guys' mouth is someone's going to have to load all that information in. And I'm like, well, what if you didn't have to do it? Let's just forget that anybody in this room had to load the information. What do you think? Oh, that's an awesome idea. That would make my life so much easier and so much efficient. And Because what happens is when they have to go look things up it turns into a pencil whipping exercise because I got 15 other ones I got to fill out, plus I got all this other paperwork I got to do. How do I just whip through it? It's like, oh, serial number one, two, three, four. No one reads these things anyway, so why do I care about the inputs to it? But if I have a system that has all of that data, and now from an upper management standpoint where I have to make decisions based on key performance indicators, let's get KPIs that actually utilize real data Mm. versus how many times has this thing failed? Well, is this thing the same thing as the last thing that failed? No, it's actually different. It's a shuttle valve or it's component X, but there's 15 different designs of this component. We lump it together and just call it the same as all the others, but they're not the same. Now that I'm able to get into a deeper level of analyses, I really start to understand the equipment more than what I did before, all using technology that's there today. You just have to step back and go, What if the answer, what if the challenge wasn't, what do I do? It's what do I not know that I can do? And if I go, I have 4,000 pieces of data sitting in front of me, build the perfect system, build the perfect picture back to the customer. Now you look at data differently versus somebody giving you a trend that shows up on the screen and you're like, what am I supposed to do with that? Yeah. How about this? Here's a blank canvas. What are you going to do with it? then the magic starts to happen. And that's where I get excited and start really going, well, if we can do this, well, can we do this? And no, we can do that. Well, what about this? And so the the sky's the limit. But then to the Oculus Rift and the 360 and all of that, Hmm. that to me is the future of training. Because now I'm taking a guy from the digital side, right? This guy's worked in operations. He's a mechanic, right? He's a hands-on guy. And I say, let me show you the soul of your actual BOP control system. How does this thing react when you push the button? What is it doing on a day-to-day basis? You've never seen it before. And it's like a doctor who finally hooks you up to an EKG and it's like, you can feel your heartbeat. But let me show you what it looks like when it's actually beating. And so when guys start to see, you mean that's really how the system works? You you have a new opportunity for training and developing the next generation of the operator. Versus a guy that goes, when I push the button, this happens. And if it starts to leak, I'll call somebody else. You don't have that luxury when you're 4,000 miles away or you're halfway across the world. And for us in our world and and for operations and subsea and blowout preventers, I can't touch it. It's thousands of feet away, 5,000, 10,000 feet away in the ocean floor. I'm looking at the control system and the trends to tell me the information that I need. The problem is, is guys have never seen it before because they're just used to a radio gauge that sits on a display. Now I've taken away the mystery of it and I can teach you how your system actually works digitally. Yeah, And we can be here, you can be in Australia, you can be in the UK, I can be in Houston. It's like, guys, look, this is what the system's doing in real time. Never before have we been able to do that. But that data has been sitting there in these control systems since we started using multiplex systems 20 years ago. But just now the digital half of what we do because of Macondo really forces the regulations. Because one of the big things with Macondo was in the initial hours when the incident took place is what is the status of the BOP? Well, nobody can answer that because the rig was on fire. The crews were on lifeboats being rescued and we were in the office trying to help troubleshoot and secure the well, stop the flow. But nobody knew what the last day of the BOP was. Now the U.S. regulator comes out and says, mandatory, you need to have real-time monitoring and it needs to be streamed back to the beach. Well, people said, well, why do we need to stream back to the beach? Well, what happens when the rig sinks? Hmm. Or if satellite comms are lost, like what is the last state of the BOP? Instead of fighting regulations, if you understand where it came from, then you go, yeah, that makes sense. Hmm. The digital world's coming, but too many people want to fight it versus just embracing it and letting it happen. It's going to happen.
1: And it's, yeah, it's more about, like, the value that you can get out of it. I mean, even looking at the training aspect of things, I mean, that's, you know, a lot of people talk about how digitization might take jobs away, but it's going to create a whole new raft of jobs. You know, you think about someone who's being virtually trained by a VR, ultimately, in 10, 15, 20 years' time, that could actually be a job where they're actually remoting into some sort of robotics field. Like, there's just the potential of it, it's limitless.
2: Yeah, and it's... The thing for us which is really interesting is if you think of the way it's done today, so a guy's out on the rig and he takes a picture and he'll take three or four pictures and he'll send it into you and he'll go, okay, here's the pictures of what I saw. Well, where is that exactly at? And it's like, well, it's inside the the blowout preventer. No, no, but what's the orientation of this picture I'm looking at versus… He sticks in a 360 camera and he sits it there and it's like, oh, I can see it exactly because I can actually spin around in my office and see what it, and it looks funny on the outside to watch one of your coworkers spinning around like he's inside of a blow up preventer. Yeah. But the the point of it is I'm there almost in real time to where even if it wasn't real time and the guys say, hey, look, I got a problem. Can you take a look at this video for me? And he just uploads it. I throw it in Oculus Rift and I can see it. You know, and it's like, oh, okay, I see exactly what you're talking about. And I can orientate myself where inside the component it is, that to me you're 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 taking things to another level. And with technology today and four K video and a lot of these other things, it's different with the latency issues that you've had in the past. You know, I think you're gonna run into a bigger problem with, you know, intrinsically safe devices and a lot of that's where the technology limitations are gonna be or the costs are gonna be so high. Mm. Um But you're starting to see now with streaming data back to the beach, you know, some people say, oh, well, it's a bandwidth issue. It's a regulatory issue. It's like, look, I don't, I'm sorry that you're going to not be able to stream Netflix from the rig, but U.S. regulations require X, Y, and Z. So unfortunately, where one regulation requires digital technology and streaming data, somebody else looks at it as a business opportunity because now the companies that are running the satellites and charging for data go, oh. Let's up the cost of data because now you have to stream data back to the beach, and so you get this this you know we don't want to send all this stuff because the cost is so high, but I have to do it because the regulations are so high, but back to your point of of the future if if companies would embrace the opportunity to be able to take digitalization in in so many different you know forms and fashions of, of what they can do offshore training live PNIDs, IDs, you know digital checklist. Real time monitoring, um, your, your operational excellence will, will quickly shift in a different direction. And because we have customers outside the Gulf of Mexico who say, well, you know, you guys do that in the Gulf. That's real time monitoring because it's regulatory required. You know, but, but what's the value to us outside the Gulf of Mexico? And I said, well, hold on a second. Just because the U.S. regulator says you have to do it, what's the value of understanding in real time the status of your blowout preventer? Well, it's important because we know this, this, and this. And so I'll ask them questions back that have nothing to do with regulations. Mm. But it's like you're sitting in Houston and you have a rig in West Africa. Don't you really want to know what the true status of that blowout preventer is? Well, yeah, I do. But how do you know what it is at this moment? Well, I don't. So it's not about U.S. regulations. It's about how much are you willing to truly understand what's going on with your equipment. And once they can understand wow, I really see what the value of this technology is. Then they start selling it for themselves. And it's like, I'll get a call that says, hey, we want to put this on four other rigs. And I'm like, whoa, where did that come from? It's like, oh, well, we saw in the Gulf of Mexico. It's awesome. And we want it in our rigs in West Africa. Mm. Okay, great. But as I tell our team, it's not the new customer coming on that's the value. It's the value we give back to the customer who then says, I loved it on my rig here. I want it on my rig in Brazil, West Africa, Asia, India, because it's, it's the value that we give back to them. Cause they'll save tenfold, a hundredfold more than what they invest in us from a monthly subscription cost. Mm. But I don't care about that. To me, it's how do we prevent another Macondo from happening, which is training, you know, making sure that people are doing the work that they're supposed to be doing. And then how do we add the greatest value back to the customer when it comes to, Let me show you what's going on. Let me help you when the U.S. regulator comes in or any regulator comes in and says, prove to me, Andrew, that you're really doing your job. And you go, cool, hold on a second. Here's my digital checklist with all the objective quality evidence attached to every item that I'm supposed to check as part of a regulatory compliance issue. And they go, okay, next. Because the more that you can demonstrate up front, I had one of my first bosses in oil and gas say, if your paperwork's clean and your shop's clean, and you look like you know what you're doing, people will stop digging around looking for things that you're not doing. Yeah. But if they come out to your shop and your paperwork's a mess and your shop's a mess, people are going to go, you, you guys are probably a mess in a lot of other places. The more you can, I'm very transparent even with the regulators. So yeah. they'll say, Well, how do you guys do this? I'm like, Cool, let me show you because I want them to understand how the process works. So when it comes time to, Hey, you know, customer X utilizes deep water subsea, the US regulator goes, I got it. The Janus 24 platform does everything that we need it to do versus does it really do what it's supposed to do? Or is it just kind of that smoke and mirrors and good marketing that that people are putting out there? For me, I'm very transparent. Let me show you, let me show you this because I get excited about it because we've never had the opportunity to do the things that we're doing today. And it's the digitalization of the work that we're doing that allows us to have this opportunity.
1: Yeah. I mean, Mike, Thank you so much um, for sharing this with us today. I mean, it is, it's super exciting.
2: Um, oh, it's, I could talk about it for, for days. Oh, so yeah. it's,
1: that's one of the reasons why, you know, I'm so excited about it as well. I think this is the future. Um, and it's part of the reason why I got involved with the industry. I'm nowhere near as technically astute as yourself. Um, but there's so much opportunity for, for the value of, of digitization to really take over. Um, and yeah, it's just very exciting.
2: I mean, I think the big thing is if you look at kids today, right? I mean, my chief administrative officer has a young a young son and he'll come to the office periodically and he grabs his iPad and he sits down and he pops it open and does his thing and you're like, like, okay. Yeah. Well, he's six and he's talking about like, oh, this dinosaur was from this age and this and this and this. And I'm like, you know, when I was six, I was in encyclopedias and like really having to figure out how to say things. And in where technologies allowed people to grow, children to grow when you embrace it at that level from a learning and just a development standpoint, there's huge opportunities for it. But unfortunately, a lot of people look at the negative side of it and go, why do we need this technology? And it's this way for 30 years, you know, mm-hmm. this is the oil and gas industry. And it's like, yeah, it's oil and gas industry. You do realize that every other industry around us is going digital, but us. Yeah. And it's like, why is that? We talk about being an industry of change and we want to be on the forefront of technology until you go to implement technology and everybody's like, whoa, hold on a second, because it, it disrupts the status quo. And it's because it's happened so many times, because it's a sweeping change that people try to make. Um, I used to say all the time, it's like, here comes the flavor of the month or the flavor of the quarter, just wait long enough. And the next new initiative will come along, whether it's you know, whatever term that it corporate wants to use or, you know, the guys will land and everybody's pumping their fists like, yeah, yeah, we're going to do this. And then the chopper leaves are like, yeah, we're not doing that stuff. <laughs> and it's like, same thing happens with some of the technology, right? Yeah. We're going to roll out this new maintenance system and this is going to be the thing we're going to go for and everybody's going to embrace it. And then you start hearing the people who are supposed to be the champions, like this doesn't work. Like this system really sucks really bad, but corporate said we're going to use it, so we're going to use it. Yeah. And then by the time it gets to the end users, the guys are like... Nobody believes in it. We weren't trained in it. Why do I even care about it? I'm just going to go do my job.
1: It was at Hexagon Live. It was an, an awesome example. I can't quite remember the guy who was speaking about it, but he was saying that when we do, the, the topic was around the industrial internet of things and sort of how do you, get, how do you leverage you know, IoT for your business. And he was saying that we roll it out in very specific departments. And if it's a success, the number one metric is it gets a pull. So other departments hear about the success that they're having with it, and then they go, we want that in our department. And that's how you meant to roll it out. Rather than just going broad sale, here's the new technology. Everyone figure out a way to work with it and go to your champions to help out. And I think there's so much wisdom in that. Like get the runs on the board and have people want it before you can actually just, yeah, throw it out there. Because then you've got the the sunk cost fallacy, you know. You're just going to keep chasing your tail.
2: That's right. That's right. And unfortunately, if you get the, the wrong champion it'll die faster than it has an opportunity to grow. Mm. And so I'm always teasing, you know, my my peers and my customers are like, oh, look at this thing. And and there was a joke a couple of years ago. I was like, oh, look at the new technology Mike found because we were trying to build that solution. So it was like, oh, every time you come to the office, you got this new thing, Mike. And it's like one day that new thing is going to be the thing. I just have to find out which thing it is. Yep. Fortunately with, you know, Pi system and J five and you know Hexagon and the entire suite of things that are coming together. I find finally found that solution, but it was always that challenge of like never being satisfied with the status quo. Like how do you constantly improve it? And for us, it's my even my my systems team is like great. Mike found another software and here it comes. We're going to get stuck with it. And it's <laughs> like, guys, look from the systems side, you don't understand it because you're the systems team from the operations side, our guys are like, anybody seen that manual? Where's that drawing at? And it's like, if you just took the hourly rate of what the entire team spends a day chasing documentation, it's like that software gets really cheap (laughs) really quick from wasted man hours. So we have to sell the fact of, hey, look, what if we could do this and we could do this? And so a lot of the times I'll sell my customer on stuff and show them what we're doing and I'll watch how excited they get because they're actually the end user. And the more they get excited, like, oh, this is amazing. I'm like, this is an easy investment to me because I already know that the guy at the end, there's no cost to him, but it allows him to see how much that we're utilizing it to move forward. And so it's a job security as well. Like, hey, look, why would I want to go anywhere else when this solution delivers everything that we're looking for? Yeah. But to your point, though, is... You, you can't come across an industry and just go, we're going to do this throughout the entire organization because as it fails in one department, they're going to talk to the next one. It's just going to keep having this avalanche of effect and just, just by the time you're done, you should have never even invest in it.
1: It's the time. I mean, it even happens in marketing. So there you go. So yeah, it's one of those things. Um, Mike, I, th- I think we are out of time. Cool. Um, look, honestly, I would love to keep talking and maybe we can after we stop recording.
2: Technology allows us to do it from anywhere in the world.
1: Exactly right. And um, I mean, is there anything that you wanted to give a shout out to or a plug um, while you've got the opportunity um, with our
2: audience? Yeah. I mean, the big thing for me is, you know, obviously the the Hexagon team and and the, the thing that I love about the technology is when you're working with teams like, you know, the the Hexagon guys and the systems teams and the technical support teams, they also get excited about trying to help you. And so for me... Anytime I get an opportunity to thank the guys that really work behind the scenes, I mean obviously no offense, the marketing team gets a lot of the, the upfront, the sales team gets the upfront. Mm. It's the the technical teams behind the scenes where it's like, hey guys, look, is there any way that we can do this? And they're like, Oh, let's go back and see if we can tweak the software, we'll come up with some solution. So there's a whole list of people, but I mean, you know, for me it's it's really giving thanks back to to your organization and, and the teams that that see you know, because we're really kind of the the new kid on the block. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we were the 2019 Trailblazer, you know, award recipients. Yep. And I sit back and I go, I mean, that's really impressive, but it's just, what I mean is it's every day we do it. But to be recognized whether it, it's like, guys, look, we're the Trailblazers because you've given us amazing tools to use. And so the more that you guys challenge yourselves to come out with better products and services, For us, it just makes our job that much easier. So thank you to all of your guys' teams from, you know, the marketing team to the sales team or the technical team. And and really, we couldn't do it without you guys.
1: Oh, Mike, that's too humbling. Um, Thanks very much. I really appreciate it. No, I appreciate um, the opportunity. Yeah, no, no, no. And um, yeah, look, obviously, thanks very much. And and hopefully we can keep this conversation going with other people offline.
0: Cool. Sounds good. Yeah. I'm here for you guys. Yeah. Thanks very much. Cheers. Andrew and Michael, thank you very much. For more information about today's topic, visit hexagonppm.com. And of course, to learn even more and listen to additional episodes, head over to hxgnspotlight.com. Thank you so much for joining us here on HXGN Radio.